You're listening to Mornings with Eric and Bridget right here on Moody Radio 89.3. Well, Is God a Vindictive Bully is the name of a new book from Dr. Paul Popian, who is a Christian theologian, an apologist, an author, professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And this is a deep dive, helping us understand some of the most difficult Old Testament challenges and understanding them in the larger historical and theological context and really answering some of the criticisms outside and inside the church. We're looking forward to this conversation we've had for a long time. Dr. Paul Copian, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Bridget, Eric, thanks. Great to be with you. Mm. Okay, yes or no? Is is it as simple as yes or no, the answer to this question? Spoiler alert, no. Okay. okay. God is not a vindictive bully. <laughs> okay. All right. That's good to know. But, I mean, there are some criticisms. Where does that begin? Where do we see some of these um, people saying, wait a minute, God is, he's guilty of ethnic cleansing, of um, atrocities even that we see in the Old Testament of violence, um, racism, genocide. Where does this come from? Well, I talk about critics from outside the church, critics from without, and also critics from within, that there are, you know, you people like athe- you know, the atheists, like Richard Dawkins and so forth, that's obvious. Uh, but then you've got some critics within the church, people like Greg Boyd and others who are theologians and biblical scholars, but yet they are distinguishing between what they call the actual God and the textual God. The textual God is this fictitious rendition of God that is not based on any actual God, but it's actually the the a false representation of God based on the ancient Near Eastern mindset and worldview of this fallen, violence-prone biblical narrator or prophet. So even when it says, thus says the Lord, that may just be, thus says Moses or Joshua. And so uh, so basically the actual God, according to Greg Boyd, is the God who is who, who loves his enemies and says, turn the other cheek and, and dies for his enemies and so forth. And anything that deviates from that is seen as the textual God, not the actual God. And what I try to do is say that, you know, as Paul says in Romans 11, 22, behold then the kindness of and severity of God. You see both of them cutting across both Testaments. And, uh, and, and so the critics from outside, they emphasize the severity of God, and the critics from within emphasize the kindness of God, but ignore the severity. And so I'm trying to keep things at this point of tension and trying to keep things balanced. And so I'm not saying I'm doing it perfectly, but I think I'm, I'm getting a lot closer than these two extremes. Mm. <laughs> and Winnie the Pooh was brought up very early in the book also, right? He, he was the writer of Winnie the Pooh is one of those from outside that you talk about. Right. A.A. Milne, yes. Mm. He was very critical, talking about the God of the Old Testament, leading a lot of people to unbelief and so forth. And and what I'm trying to do is saying, actually, the, the more closely you look, you see a God who is actually patient. He waits a long time before the driving out of the Canaanites, uh, gives warning to people, uh, you know, like even, even you know, the Sodomites, you know, that they are, you know, God, even for 10 people, God is not going to destroy them. But, and you don't have 10 righteous people in the city. So there's a God who's willing to show compassion sends its prophets, pleads with his people, renews covenants and so forth, uh, and then finally says, that's enough. Uh, and so that's that there is a God who brings judgment. It's not just all mercy. You can't understand mercy unless you have an understanding of justice. But how can a guy like David, who was very destructive in some ways, be a man after God's own heart, but others be condemned almost? Right. Yeah. And, and I, I, in the book, I compared David and Saul. You know, isn't David doing the same sorts of things that Saul is? 
Well, in some ways, yes. And, and when we look at the phrase, a man after God's own heart, uh, it can be understood in two ways. Some people see this as, oh, he's a you know, very righteous man. He's living an upright life and so forth. But actually, it could also mean that David is the one who is selected to accomplish God's purposes. He is, you know, and, and so that phrase is used in a different way that, you know, like when you, someone says, do what is according to your heart or what is in your heart. Uh, that's the same idea. God is doing what is according to his heart, namely what is going to be most effective for the accomplishing of his purposes, even if he uses a fallen, flawed, even tragic figure Mm. like David. Mm. Well, in your book, you also go through some of these difficult examples and passages and specifically scripture. And there are some, especially in the very beginning of the Old Testament, that are difficult to read. When we think about the times where the Israelites were called to wipe out a whole group of people, can you walk through one of those examples and how to better understand it? Okay. Well, one of the, I spent a lot of time in this, so I'm going to be, it's going to almost embarrassingly brief about Mm -hmm. this. But one of the key emphases that I bring to this is that there is a high degree of hyperbole, that when you see God saying, dry, you know, it says utterly destroy, and there's even a question, how do we interpret utterly destroy? Sometimes it just, that word means exile. It doesn't mean utter destruction. And I use the analogy of, you know, basically God is trying to remove the identity of those Canaanites. If you get rid of the idols, you get rid of these sexually immoral practices, then the Canaanites are not a problem. It's kind of like Nazi Germany, where the when the Allies won, they removed all the, the monuments, burned the flags, uh, you know, put to death the hierarchy who were responsible for promoting this ideology. And once that all of that was done, you basically had the German people intact. So the problem wasn't the German people, it was the Nazi ideology. And so this is what God is trying to uh, you know, fundamentally remove. So it's not anti-Canaanite, it's anti-idolatry. And of course, the Canaanites were engaging in practices like bestiality, incest, ritual prostitution, and uh, an infant sacrifice, and, and acts that would be considered criminal in any modern society. Mm-hmm. So, so there is this horrific dimension to them, too. And so I, I basically say where a lot of times when it says we utterly destroyed them, well, what does that mean? Or we left no survivor. This is a lot of ancient Near Eastern rhetoric uh, that is used in other war texts like the Egyptians and so forth. And some, and when you read the scriptures, you, it looks like it says we, you know, we left no survivor. And then a chapter later or at the end of the book, there are lots of those survivors there. In fact, in, in Judges after Joshua, it says we could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. So you see that there is kind of an Exaggerate. It's kind of like ancient Near Eastern trash talk. In our mm-hmm. like we have sports. You know, we totally annihilated those guys. Well, you know, it's not taken literally. And in the ancient Near East, when it says we left no survivor, we totally destroyed them. The, there is the assumption that there was a victory, but hard to tell what the fallout actually was, and it's often highly exaggerated. And so that's what I'm trying to bring into this picture. And I give one, I'll give one example. In Numbers 21, where it says that these two kings, these Amorite kings that they were fought against, we're told that the king, his sons, and his army fought against the you know, Israelites, and, and, and they were defeated. You read Deuteronomy 2 and 3, and it says— it uses this kind of sweeping language. It doesn't just refer to these you know, combatants. It says man, woman, young and old. So it brings in this kind of sweeping language, even though there weren't any non-combatants at the original scene. So the scriptures, especially in Deuteronomy, will intensify that language, even though there are no non-combatants actually on the scene. So I try to bring out some of those things. And so it, you know, the more closely you look, 
the less and less it looks like God is saying, you know, you know, utterly wipe out all of these Canaanites. It's basically the 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 goal is drive them out, remove them from the land. And if there are Canaanites who are willing to go along with the agenda of Israel, aren't willing to practice these things anymore, you remove that identity. Then, then there is no problem. So those are some of the things that I talk about. Hmm. All right, we're we're still driving out though. We're still getting them to leave their their homeland or wherever they're at. That's still harsh. That's still hard to look at. But then we go to the New Testament, and that harsh reality is now a loving reality. There's two different, right? People are saying there's two different gods right. here. There's the Old Testament God, and then there's the New mm. Testament God. How do we talk about that? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we need to emphasize, of course, we see a greater emphasis on mercy, on, you know, like not on cursing, but blessing and so forth. But it's not as though the curse or, you know, the call for God to bring judgment is gone. The, the martyred saints in Revelation are saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood that has been shed by those who dwell upon the earth? We see, interestingly, our best manuscripts in Jude 5, we read that Jesus, so looking at the Old Testament Christologically in a Trinitarian fashion, it says Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, destroyed those who did not believe. So Jesus is actually part of this judgment, this severity. So it's not as though severity is gone, Mm. but we still see that there's a God who's willing to show mercy, but again, there are times when God says enough and severity follows. And so you know, Jesus himself said in, in Matthew 18, 6, that if someone leads one of these little ones astray, it'd be better to have a millstone hang, hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So there are severe things that Jesus uh, says, in fact, even promising judgment to come on Jerusalem itself and using very severe language in his parables to express that, cursing the fig tree and so forth, representing Israel. So these are some of the things that also need to be brought out. Uh, Jesus overturning the 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 money changers' temples, uh, tables in the temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one one the, one one thinker said, "I couldn't believe in a Messiah who doesn't overturn a few tables now and then." <laughs> uh, so, and, and we need a God who is actually. You know, I think it's helpful to understand that this wrath, you know, God is just, of course, but wrath is often an expression of God's love. That God hates it when people are being dehumanized, oppressed, uh, when they're being tyrannized, and so God finally says. Enough, and, and because these image bearers uh, of his are being harmed. And so God, out of his love and pr- desire to protect and so forth, will say that's enough and will bring judgment. That is so why we can't really divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament, that we've got to understand both of them in order to truly understand, if we can't even truly understand mm-hmm. in our you know finite minds, our eternal Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that I try to point out is like Greg Boyd, this theologian, says this is the actual God, this is the textual God. And so he'll say, God didn't do this, God didn't say that, and so forth. And I and I go and I compare the scriptures and I'll say, actually, the way what Greg Boyd says is the textual God, and what Greg Boyd says, you know, can't be the actual God. I, I actually show that these two are identical, and I have a chart at the end of the book that goes through each of those accusations that Greg makes, these these claims that Greg makes. And where it seems like God is, you know, God couldn't have done that. God couldn't have done that. The actual God could have done that. I say, no, actually, as you look at other scriptures, God is actually behind these sorts of things. But we need to understand that both, you know, if you have a God who does not bring judgment, a God who does not, uh, you know, say enough is enough, we don't have a God who is actually caring about people. And so this is something that we also need to understand. So where is God today? 
If if we are looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament and who he is, how do we see that in our as we walk through life today? Right. One of the chapters, a couple of chapters that I have in my book is on the imprecatory psalms, those sometimes harsh-sounding psalms where people are saying, Lord, break their teeth, right. bring judgment upon right. them, and so forth. And I think that it's important for us to remember that those imprecatory psalms are used, some of them are used in the New Testament as well. It's not as though that's the end of it. I mean, they're lessened, but there's still a call, God, how long until you bring judgment and so on. But it's 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 actually— the psalmists are calling on God to do the work. It's not as though we take these matters into our own hands. And also, I think Psalm 139, where the psalmist is, is talking about his, God, you know, his enemies or God's enemies and so forth, he is, he is calling on God to bring judgment. But he also says at the end, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So so basically, you know, when you're praying for God to work in the hearts of terrorists, mm-hmm. uh, God to work in the hearts of people who are doing terrible things, like the Apostle Paul uh, before he was a, became a believer. Uh, so praying that God will work in their hearts, or sometimes, Lord, stop their hearts mm-hmm. if they continue in their, in their ways and, and bring harm to people. But also examine my heart as I pray. So, so those are some. That's kind of a triad that I that I bring out in the book, and I think there's a ready application for us today. Yeah, and we can't really think about all of this without thinking about the gospel, because mm-hmm. in the gospel we do see the judgment, but we see the mercy that we can receive. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, that we you know Jesus doesn't just die as some sort of a moral example where, oh, look at this self-sacrificial love. No, this, there, there's something that's actually done on our behalf, mm-hmm. that uh, Christ who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, it's not as though Jesus becomes a sinner. He was a pure, unblemished lamb. But in this act, he takes on uh, uh, himself the penalty that we deserve. Think about maybe parents who uh, who have a teenager who you know crashes the car and who is the one legally who takes the legal brunt of that? Well, it's the parents who do. They're the ones who, uh, though they have done no wrong, they take that burden upon themselves. And in the same way, God takes that burden, that penalty upon himself, does what we and ourselves could not do, uh, that we don't have to face that wrath, uh, that we don't have to face that judgment because Jesus takes that upon himself. And so we see in the cross, both, like you said, the, the love of God that is there and also the judgment of God, the wrath of God that is there. And so it's kind of like John three sixteen in in, in in chapter 3, we have verse 16, God so loved the world. But also we see later on in 36 that, that the wrath of God remains upon those who continue in their disobedience. So, so we see both love and wrath uh, you know, simultaneously. And so in the same way in the cross, we see that Jesus takes that penalty that, that we deserve uh, so that we can become, uh, you know, right in, in right sta- we can come into right standing with God. Mm. That's really what makes Christianity different than any other world religion. This, this whole conversation that we're talking about is what makes it unique and right. special for us. Absolutely. Yeah, we see the grace of God. Again, we, salvation is not on our shoulders. It is actually, you know, we are accepted before God because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And that Jesus comes into the world not to punish sinners, but actually to take punishment upon himself so that we might be, you know, we as enemies might be reconciled to God and become his children. So it's a wonderful picture and indeed emphasize 
emphasizes the uniqueness of the gospel. Yeah. So a next step to this conversation is head to our webpage, ericandbridget.org, because there we've got linked Dr. Paul Copan's website, but also this book, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Because you can do a deep dive into this yourself. But the other tab you'll see is in the right-hand corner, How to Know Christ, because if this gospel message is something that you have not received for yourself and received that mercy of God, you'll want to click there to find out how you can do that today.